Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello, and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Now today we'll be studying from the book of Philippians chapter 3. So grab your Bibles and let's get started. As usual, I'm uh, going to be reading from the New International Version, and the verses of Scripture will be projected upon the screen as I read them uh, to help you along. So if you, even if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along. But uh, preferably you have um, the scriptures that you're reading from or a electronic device that you can pull it up on and follow us along with it. I, I encourage you to uh, study your Bible so that you can write in it, uh, you know, draw lines under it, mark it up. Um, I prefer just a traditional Bible um, along with other study materials. But uh, whatever you have, follow us along. So again, we're in Philippians chapter 3 and I'm reading verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. The word rejoice means to be joyful, to be happy, to be glad. In other words, Paul is saying, cheer up, uh, make yourself glad. So actually, we can choose to be sad or happy. Uh, by our attitude. If we maintain a positive attitude and we think on the right things and we focus on the right thing, we determine that we're going to rejoice regardless of how we feel. Uh, we can change our, our attitude and eventually change how we feel. The Bible tells us 248 times throughout the Bible to rejoice. We're commanded to cultivate joy in our lives for several reasons. So, the Bible encourages us to have joy for a number of reasons. Number one, because joy gives us strength. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. And uh, secondly, number two, because a joyful, cheerful heart is good medicine. The Bible says a cheerful heart is, is good medicine. It does good like medicine. That's Proverbs 17, 22. Uh, and then Thirdly, number three, uh, we should maintain a joyful heart because life is much easier with joy than it is when you're walking around in grief and sorrow. Life is much harder when you're, when you're sad. You lack motivation. You just don't feel like getting it done. So when you have a happy heart, a joyful heart, you are, you are more productive and uh, you're achieving more in life. And you're enjoying life better. Number four, joy gives us energy. Sadness saps our energy. And joy supplies us with the energy to do, go about our business doing what, we're, what we have to do. Number five, joy most motivates us. It moves us to do things, to, to, do, to serve, to uh, carry out our responsibilities, whatever it is we have to do. We do it with joy. Um, uh, we're motivated. Sadness actually paralyzes you and uh, paralyzes us and, and slows us down. 
And then number six, joy cheers those who are around us. Sadness dampens those who are around us. My wife, Joyce, is a very joyful person, and, and she lights up a room when she comes in. Um, the the, attitude, the um, atmosphere can just be kind of uh, melancholy and morose, and, and then we, she comes in singing and with a cheerful voice, and she just lifts everybody up. She lights a room. So uh, when we maintain that spirit of joy, we are shining a brighter light. We, we touch other people. We lift them out of the doldrums, and, uh, and we help other people. So living a joyful life or a sad life is a matter of choice. You feed sadness by doing the following things. Of course, you don't want to feed sadness. We want to feed joy. Uh, but you feed sadness by, number one, feeling sorry for yourself, having a pity parties and seeking pity from other people. Uh, that's how you, you can feed your sadness. And some people want to maintain an attitude of sadness so that they can milk sympathy out of other people. And they walk around with their face turned upside down and like they've been sucking on lemons, uh, trying to provoke someone into asking them what's wrong so they can pour out their pity on them. Um, that the Bible uh, tells us not to do that. It tells us to rejoice even when things are not good for us. Rejoice, even if you don't feel like it. Rejoice, gladden your heart and, and give praise and thanks to God. So you can feed your, your sadness by feeling sorry for yourself, number one, and, and having a pity party. Number two, you can feed your sadness by letting your mind rest on problems, uh, just focusing on the problems in your life. There's always something good that is happening to you. Uh, if it's nothing more than just walking out into the sunshine or you know, the fact that you're able to breathe or the birds are singing or there are flowers are around or, or the beautiful snowfall. There are things that are happening in your life that, that are good that you can focus on and you should focus on rather than focusing on the problems in your life. Certainly we have to deal with problems uh, we have to focus on them enough to deal with them, but we shouldn't just carry them around uh, feeding off of them. And then number three, you can feed sadness by constantly talking about your problems, your needs and your lack. And then number four, you can feed sadness by counting your problems instead of counting your blessings. And we know the song that says, count your blessing, name them one by one. Uh, that's something that we should do. Uh, instead, some people uh, count their problems and name them one by one. And then number five, you can feed sadness by grumbling and complaining all the time. And the Bible tells us not to do that because it is a, it is a sin against God. Now, I want to tell you the ways that we can feed joy in our lives. We can feed joy in our lives, number one, by counting and naming our blessings and giving thanks and praise to God. That feeds your joy. As you stop and begin to list, list the good things that God has done in your, in your life, the blessings that God has poured out upon you, you'll be surprised that there are many more than what you realize. So just stop and, and, and make a list of those and, and pull them out every day and give thanks to God for them. And, and when you're feeling sad, pull out your list of blessings and begin to uh, name them and, and uh, begin to give thanks to God for each one of them. And that'll help to lift you. Number two, you can feed your joy 
by doing good to other people. That This is a really good way to enrich your life with joy. Being rich in good works. People who are rich in good works are usually happier and uh, more full of joy than people who are stingy and selfish. Proverbs 11.25 says this, A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Okay? So when you do for other people, when you bring joy into other people's lives, then that comes back to you. It rebounds to you. You give it out and it comes back. Whatever you send out comes back. Okay? So um, if you serve other people and do good for them, uh, it will it will steep your joy. It will, it will increase your joy and fulfill your joy. Number three, you can feed your joy by thinking joyful thoughts. Let me give you a scripture. I call these the great eight. The great eight. They're from Philippians chapter four, verse six. Um, uh, no, chapter four, verse eight. I'm sorry. It says this, fix your thoughts on what is true, on what is honorable, what is right and pure and lovely and admirable. Things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Okay, so the Bible tells us what to think about, what to fix our thoughts on. We are not to fix our thoughts on troubles and problems. Don't focus on them. Don't magnify them by talking about them. To magnify something means to make it bigger than what it is, to make it appear bigger. So uh, if you think about your troubles all the time and talk about them all the time, they will loom larger in your life. But instead, if you begin to fix your thoughts on things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable, excellent and praiseworthy, the great eight, it will feed your joy. And then number four, you can feed your joy by speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what Ephesians 5.19 says. Speak to yourself in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So sing gospel songs, sing hymns, uh, sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to God you don't know any, learn some. If all you have stored in your in your device, the only kind of music that you have in your is, is stored in your device is secular music, then you need to you know get some of that out of the way and begin to uh, learn some gospel. Familiarize yourself with some uh, hymns and gospel songs and and begin to sing them, and they'll they'll lift your spirit. David spoke to himself and said. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? This is Psalm 42, 5, and 6. I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior, my God. Again, Psalm 42, and 5, and 6. David spoke to himself. And, and this is what Paul is telling us uh, in, in Ephesians, that we should speak to ourselves. Ephesians 5, 19. Speak to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. Um, sometimes when I'm in, a, in my devotion time and my spirit feels down, and sometimes you can just wake up in the morning and, and this spirit of heaviness and sadness is all over you. You have to shake yourself loose from that. 
And, and sometimes I get a, a down in, in my prayer time, in my devotion time, uh, and I just say to my own spirit, uh, focus on the Lord. Uh, uh, you know, remember God, focus on the Lord and, and, and worship him and praise him. And I begin to do that. And that helps to lift me out of those uh, sad moments, uh, those doldrums. Those things can take anybody momentarily. Uh, the great philosopher Bobby McFerrin simply said, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. That's some uh, uh, advice from a person who may not be spiritual, but it's good advice. Instead of focusing on our worries, we should focus on the joys of our lives. We should magnify those, enjoy those. We should recall special moments that lift us and give us joy. Just feast on the good things of God. Now, joy and happiness is not a matter of what you have. That's important to note. It's a matter of how you think and what you do. Many poor people are very happy and many rich people are very sad, even to the point of committing suicide. We all know about people who have everything going for them who, that other people might envy and desire to be in their position who go off and kill themselves, hang themselves or shoot themselves or take some pills or do whatever. They're in misery. They have everything that anyone could want in the way of material things, uh, but they're miserable. So, uh, you know, joy and happiness is not a matter of what you have. Man's life does not consist, Jesus said, in the abundance of the things which he possesses. It's a matter, uh, joy and happiness is a matter of how you live life, how you think and what you do. Uh, many happy people have more trouble uh, than sad people. There are many people, if you really, they're just happy and joyful and they go through life sort of in a carefree way. And if you really scratch beneath the surface, if you really got to know them, uh, and, and, and you really got to know about their problems, you'll realize, man, they've got all these problems and uh, why are they still so happy? Uh, it's because they've learned how to live life in the joy lane instead of in the sad lane. So uh, it's important to know that it's not in what you have. It's in your attitude and how you think and what you do for other people as to how you live your life uh, in, in a, uh, a life of joy, joyfulness, or, uh, a way of being joyful. Now I'm reading verses two through three. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision and we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul gives the Philippian saints a repeated warning here uh, throughout this passage and other passages, Galatians and some of the other ones. He warns them uh, about those uh, mutilators of the flesh, the circumcision. He says, watch out for dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. He, he's talking about Judaizers. These are Jewish uh, Christians or uh, Jewish people who want to make uh, grace with, with uh, works, with the law. Uh, they were... Jewish Christians who taught the Gentile Christians that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. They had, these Jewish people had accepted 
uh, Christ as their Messiah, but they wanted to bring uh, the Mosaic law uh, and mix it with the teachings of Christ. And the law was just to make us aware of sin. Um, it was in place for a time. And of course, Jesus fulfilled it all and moved it out of the way. And he brought a new covenant to us, the covenant of grace. Um, these Judaizers, these Jewish people who had accepted Christ, but were trying to force law on others. He was, they were uh, teaching the Gentile Christians that they had to be circumcised and they had to keep the law of Moses. And that was troubling them. It was stealing their joy from them. Um, they were troubling and misleading the new converts by telling them, unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, that's a direct quote from Acts chapter 15 uh, and verse 1. They called themselves the circumcision because they prided themselves on being Jewish, on their Jewish heritage uh, and the law. God made a covenant or an agreement or a contract with Abraham. There's a little, little history here. Uh, and this covenant included several promises. And this was to the Jewish people. It promised Canaan land to Abraham's descendants, the Jews, number one. Number two, it promised to bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who cursed him. It promised that all the people of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a sign of that covenant agreement, Abraham was told to circumcise all his male children and anyone who wanted to be part of that covenant agreement had to be circumcised. All right. Now, about 650 years later, Moses was given the law and he handed it down along with circumcision to the Jewish people, this rite of circumcision. And from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, anyone wanting to become part of the Jewish religion had to circumcise their male children and keep the law of Moses. That was all the way from the time of Moses to the time of Christ. Actually, from the time of Abraham, they circumcised. But from the time of Moses to the time of Christ, uh, they had to keep the law and circumcision. Now, about 1,500 years after Moses, Christ Jesus came and he established a new and better covenant and established it upon better promises. And his covenant did not require circumcision and keeping the ceremonial law. His covenant required faith in Christ Jesus alone. That's all we had to do was put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our faith is demonstrated by obeying his instructions, uh, but we didn't have to work out. We don't have to work our way into this covenant or into heaven. Observance of the Jewish ceremonial law ended when Christ rose from the dead. He fulfilled the law and brought us a new covenant. In fact, the, the Bible says that he nailed it to his cross. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 says, He that is Christ, is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises, okay? Um, now, the Judaizers wanted to hold on to the old covenant, that is, the circumcision, these that Paul are calling evildoers and dogs. They wanted to hold on to the old covenant 
and grab for the new one also. They wanted to try to have them both, but you can't have them both. The old covenant was fulfilled in Christ and replaced by the new covenant with its promises. Trying to mix the old and the new covenants creates a false way, a hybrid of two religions, and they clash. If you try to add anything to salvation besides faith in Jesus Christ, we're, we are actually engaging in heresy, that is, false teaching. If we tell people they have to keep law, uh, have to keep the law, and, and they have to be circumcised, or they have to keep the law along with what Christ said, then we are creating a, a heresy, a false religion, and we are teaching falsely. The Judaizers were putting a big stumbling block in the way of those who were becoming Christians. And Paul opposed them at every turn, calling them dogs and evil men and uh, mutilators of the flesh. He called them mutilators of the flesh because they love going around circumcising people, forcing people to get circumcised. And, and um, again, that old covenant, that old contract, was, was put away through Jesus Christ. He fulfilled it all, and then he nailed it to his cross. Paul made it clear that anyone who accepted Christ was under the new covenant and adopted into Abraham's family and were true Jews, whether they were uh, uh, born Israelites or not. We are the seed of Abraham by faith. In verse 3 of our text, he said, we are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we don't put confidence in circumcised flesh. We don't put confidence in the works of the flesh. Yes, as Christians, we do good works. The Bible commands us to do good works, but our good works are just a response to God's goodness. We are not earning our way into heaven. I don't care how much good you do, you cannot earn heaven. Jesus Christ paid it all. He shed his blood on Calvary. His sinless, pure blood was shed on Calvary's cross to pay for our sins and to give us adoption into God's family and a right into heaven. So we go to, we go to heaven because of what God did through Jesus Christ, not through what we do. Now, we do good works. The Bible encourages us to be rich in good works. We do it as a response. We do it in obedience. Our good works and the change in our lives are actually evidence of our faith. Okay, so we don't, we don't work our way into heaven. And uh, we don't work our way into becoming uh, uh, pleasing to God. And certainly we do. It is pleasing to God that we do good works. But we earn salvation and favor with God, uh, not through our works, but through uh, we receive it through faith. We, we accept it through faith. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, in the New Living Translation, it says, he, uh, Paul said, For you are not a, a, a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. 
Uh, and true circumcision is not merely obeying in the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. Now, I like that. That's very clear. So even the change of heart that we have is not from us. It is produced by the Spirit. Even the faith that we use to receive the new covenant promises, to enter into the new covenant with God and enter into adoption, even that faith is a gift from God. So you see that under grace, under this new covenant of, of grace, God works in us both the will and to do of his own good pleasure. He gives us the faith that we use to receive the promises. Okay, so it's God. Now, again, we produce good works because the Holy Spirit is bringing into us that desire to obey him and giving us that ability to obey him. Now I'm reading verses four through seven. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul is saying here, if anybody has a right to boast in their, in their Jewish heritage, if anybody has a right to boast in the law, I would have that right uh, because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was devoted to the law of Moses. He persecuted the church before he came to the realization that Jesus Christ was indeed the, the Messiah that God had sent. He opposed the church while he was in ignorance, but God converted him. God shined a light on him. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke to him and corrected him. And when he found out the truth, he accepted Christ and he let go uh, of the law. At one time, Paul's pride and confidence was in his Jewish religion, his Jewish culture, and, and in circumcision. Circumcision includes the circumcision of the flesh, but also in, uh, it speaks of their, their Jewish blood and their and the law and everything. So circumcision just became a word to identify Jews in their religion, the Jewish people and their religion. Paul lists the things that were so important to him. Number one, he was born a Jew and circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, that was their custom. They would, uh, when a baby was born, God commanded them that on the eighth day after he was born to circumcise uh, your male children. Uh, number two, Paul said he was from the Jewish tribe of Benjamin. He could trace uh, his genealogy back to the tribe of Benjamin. Number three, he took pride in the fact that he was a strict Pharisee in the Jewish law and religion. Number four, he took pride in the fact that he, he demonstrated zeal for Judaism by persecuting the church. He was rising in the ranks of Judaism. And number five, he carefully observed the law of Moses. And then number six, um, he became a Christian, okay? When he became a Christian, he turned away from all of those Jewish things. He loved his Jewish heritage. He um, prided himself in his Jewish heritage. 
keeping all the feasts, following all the laws meticulously. But when he became a Christian, when he realized that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah, the very Christ that he had been fighting against, he had persecuted the church, even having people put to death, participating in that. But when he came to know that he was wrong, he accepted the fact that he was wrong, and then he got right. When he became a, a Christian, none of those things that he had taken pride in before meant anything to him. It didn't matter to him. He threw, he threw it all away. Now, in verse 7, he said, I now consider these things loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul had abandoned those uh, things that he so prided himself all of his life in. He abandoned them for Christ. And, of course, the Judaizers refused to do this. Paul abandoned the things that the Judaizers refused to abandon. Now, I had the privilege of leading a Jewish woman to Christ. Um, I helped her understand that her faith had to be in Christ and, and not in her Jewish heritage. And, of course, God blessed her and, and, and used her to raise up a um, a Messianic congregation right here in Indianapolis. And uh, a lot of people have been blessed by that. But, but uh, the Messianic Jewish people understand that uh, they can't be saved by their Jewish heritage and, and circumcision. They receive Christ and they put their faith in Christ, even though they embrace their Jewish heritage, their culture. Uh, they're proud of the culture, but they understand that the culture is not what saves them. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Now I'm reading verses 8 through 9. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I, con I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of of faith. So the new covenant made the old covenant obsolete and worthless. Paul said all of those things that I took so much pride in, I just considered them refuse. I just, I just refuse. I consider them garbage now uh, compared to what Christ is all about and about the, the new covenant. Um, so the new covenant made the old covenant obsolete and worthless for salvation. It is no longer in effect. To hold on to the old covenant is to reject Christ and his new covenant. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 4, I'm reading in the New Living Translation. Paul emphatically warned, listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. But if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. So Paul was emphatic about it. If you choose law, then you're rejecting grace, okay? Uh, if, you, if you choose grace, you have to let go of the law. The law is good uh, for its purposes, but its purpose has been served. The law came to make us to make the Jewish people aware of sin. We Gentiles were never under the law. Non-Jewish people were never under the law. 
God gave the law to the Jewish people to make them aware of the, of, of the sinfulness of sin and aware of their need for someone to save them from their sins. And of course, Jesus Christ came and he was the one who saved them from their sin. We cannot be made right with God by trying to keep the old covenant. We can't uh, be good enough to earn heaven. We are accepted into heaven, into the kingdom of God by placing our faith in Christ. And when we do that, he writes his laws in our minds and he writes them in our hearts. Now, of course, we have to read the scripture, have to memorize the scripture. We want to do that. But God puts his will in us to, to do uh, his good pleasure and he gives us the ability to do it. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 in the New Living Translation says, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Okay, so that's what God does in the new covenant. He puts his laws, his, uh, his will into our minds and into our hearts. We can only receive the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Every other way and every other religion is false. I'll say that again. Every other way and every other religion is false. Jesus Christ said, I am the door. Okay, so he is the door. Now, verses 10 through 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul did not shrink back from the suffering that is part of being a Christian, a follower of Christ. When we become Christians, we will participate in his sufferings. We will be persecuted. Things will happen to us. Some of us will suffer more severely than others, but every true Christian will suffer persecution. But if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2 and 12 tells us that. Now, verses 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't claim to be perfect, but he was pressing toward perfection. To press forward requires forward focus. We can't fixate on the sins and the failures of our past and focus forward. Focus on eternal goals. We can't do it if we're uh, now, we should be sorry for our sins, and we should let go of our sins, but we can't keep looking back at them and, uh, and grieving over them. Let that go and look forward to what is ahead. Christ has forgiven you. If you've gone to Christ and you've asked his forgiveness and you, and you have uh, by faith received the Lord Jesus Christ, he's washed away those sins. He's forgiven them. So don't keep whipping yourself for it because it, it doesn't uh, avail anything. It doesn't profit anything to, uh, to keep mourning over your sins. Let them go. 
let go of the past and focus on the future. Keep your eyes on the prize. The prize is heaven and the new heaven and the new earth that is, is to come. So keep your eyes on the prize in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm reading verses 15 through 16. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Mature Christians are forward-thinking Christians. They are forward-focused Christians. They understand that their sins have been forgiven and that there's no value in continuing to mourn over those past sins. There are, there are lots of things in my life, in the past, that I wish I could change. There are some things that I did that I wish I hadn't done. And if I could change them, I would change them. But it's impossible to go back. I can't go back. So I won't waste a lot of time sitting in remorse over the past, grieving over the past. I'm just going to do better going forward. That's the attitude that we have to take. Let's live up to what we already know, Paul says. Let's live up to the level of maturity that we have already arrived at. Let's not shrink back into childish conduct and behavior. Let's move forward and, uh, and, and be mature Christians. When I was a boy, I sometimes embarrassed my mother by doing things that, that I was taught not to do. And uh, when I would do that, she would say, boy, you know you know better. You know better than that, okay? So what Paul is saying to us, don't keep doing things that you know better than to do. You've been taught by the word of God to let certain things go, let them go, including your past, but also that's old sinful lifestyle. Move away from that and live up to what you've attained to. Now, some adults go through a midlife crisis in their 40s and 50s, and then they start acting like they're in their 20s. Uh, that's going backwards. Uh, uh, we should celebrate the fact that we've reached a level of maturity and not have regrets about it. Now I'm reading verses 17 through 19. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those, those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Mature Christians should aspire to be role models. We should model the kind of lifestyle um, that other people can follow. We want to be examples to other people. So that's what it means to let our light shine, to live such a life that other people can follow our example. Paul urges the saints to follow his, uh, his, his example. Now, in verse 18, Paul warns that there are many false Christians among us. They claim Christianity, but are really the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, uh, Paul says. Their God is their appetite, and they go after ungodly things. That's what they have an appetite for, and they feed that appetite. Paul said their glory is in their shame. They're proud of what they should be ashamed of. So, and he says, all they think about is this life here on earth. They have no interest in heaven. 
or spiritual things. They are carnal in the way that they live their lives, but they claim to be Christians. And so we find that there are a lot of people claiming to be Christians today, still living uh, sinful lives. The, the, um, the grace of, of Christ has not pulled them out of the old lifestyle. They're the same as they were before they met Christ. They think that just because they said a simple prayer and got baptized, that fixed it all. That was uh, uh, the wave of the magic wand. And now they're, they're going to heaven and now they can return to their life of sin. That is such an error. Um, they, are, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. When Christ comes into your life, you want to be done with sin. You might mess up. You might fall. But you're always compelled to get up. Uh, when you do wrong, you have remorse over it. You repent of it. You turn from it. You pray uh, and ask for strength, and you keep pressing forward. If you fall again, you, you'll never be satisfied. It's like a person uh, uh, walking along and falling in a, a pig pen and all of the mud and all of the pig feces and all of the, the stuff that pigs wallow in and just falling in that and, and finding enjoyment in it. Uh, once you become a Christian, you can't find enjoyment in, in living in sin anymore. It troubles you. Uh, you can't rest in it. Uh, you want to move out of it. You might fall into it, but you don't stay in it. Okay. Now I'm reading verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our citizenship, that is our homeland, is in heaven. And we as Christians, we eagerly wait for Jesus to return. Why? Because when he comes back, he's going to change our vile bodies into glorious bodies like his own. We're going to have superhuman bodies. He's going to rid us of even the desire of sin. We're going to have glorious bodies like his own, like, like Jesus's body. We're going to have greater intellect and greater power. And we're going to be as the angels. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. We're going to rule first over this earth, a thousand years, the millennial reign of Christ. And Christ will rule and, and the saints will rule with him. The kingdom will be given to us. For a thousand years, we will rule over a near perfect earth. It'll be returned to a place of perfection, just like after the creation. Uh, even the animal will be peaceful with each other, and there will be peace and joy and goodwill in this earth. That's what we're looking forward to. God will come back, and Jesus Christ will rule, and the angels will be with us, and, and the saints will rule under Christ. So our citizenship is in heaven, and we're looking eagerly for the return of Christ to put down corruption. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that's what I pray for every day. And that's what Jesus Christ told us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. He said, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And his, his will is only going to be done when he rules. Um, when he rules and the saints rule under him, then you can leave your doors unlocked. You can leave your car unlocked. Uh, you won't have to worry about uh, people stealing and robbing and shooting and killing. We won't have to worry about corruption in government and injustice. We won't have to worry about racism and, and sicknesses and diseases and all of these things that are such maladies that we suffer 
today in our society will be gone. So yes, we eagerly await the Savior, Jesus Christ, to return. He will transform our vile bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He will use the same power he uses to subdue all things to create new heavens. After the millennial reign of Christ upon this earth, he is going to create new heavens and a new earth. Okay, This earth will be burned up or renovated with by fire. And then he will create new heaven and a new earth. And heaven and earth will merge together. And we will be with God forever in a perfect world, a perfect environment, doing perfect things, growing in knowledge throughout eternity, growing in power, uh, learning and growing and being with Christ in a perfect world and a perfect universe. That's what I look forward to. That's what I pray for. Okay. This is the ultimate prize that we should fixate on, fix our minds on. We, uh, the Bible says that we should set our minds on heavenly things. All right. Well, that brings us to the close of Philippians chapter three. Next week, we'll study Philippians chapter four. Now, friend, if you live in the Indianapolis area, I'd like to invite you to come visit us at New Direction, where my son, Kenneth Sullivan Jr., is the pastor. He's the lead pastor there. Our East Campus is located at 5330 East 38th Street, and our North Campus is located at 7701 East 86th Street. Our service times are 830 and 1130 on 38th Street and at 10 a.m. on 86th Street. I hope to see you in one of our services. In the meantime, I want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, God bless you.